Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Bugs Bunny and Doctor Who, basically the same character. What? Yeah, yeah, you, you didn't know. He's just there, a chaos merchant. A chaos merchant. Also, there is no problem which I cannot solve with my wit. No matter how violent my opponents are, I can always outwit them. It's so, true. like, and Elmer you can Fudd. also step outside of the constraints of, of the screen, exactly. of the world, of yeah. everything in the way that Doctor yeah, Who can yeah. step outside. So, that's it, yeah. The magic is inside of Bugs Bunny. He doesn't need a box. The magic is inside of him. Uh-huh. And his carrot. Maybe that's where his, you know, where his power lies is in his carrot. <laughs> I mean, this carrot is a sonic screwdriver. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> The, the, the fact, sonic carrot yeah the sonic carrot all right okay i know you guys make conspiracy videos I, i've seen them on the youtube so there you go bugs bunny is doctor who is the doctor clearly there is nobody called doctor who uh, it's like frankenstein's monster all over again this is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like i'm chris camerud and i'm eg kosh my story for this week is uh, Tandiwe's Tokoloshi by Nick Wood, which is in the African Monsters Anthology. It's possible I am pronouncing the title incredibly wrong, and if that's the case, I'm sorry, Nick. But the story was delightful, so I'm just going to steam ahead. Um, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so the story is about a young girl called Tandiwe, who lives with her baby brother and her sick mum. And one day she sees a rainbow and goes in search of the pot of gold that might be at the end of it. So, so far, so simple, right? But then it gets into being a story that is about stories and how we use stories to form our identity and how Tandiwe is at that that moment in her life where she's choosing what stories are going to be part of the identity and looking at all these different sources in her life for what those stories might be. Yeah, that that is is what kind of crept up on me and gave me a sense of joy and that pulled me through the story because there was a little bit of reaction to the story when she was being cynical, not cynical, but when she was being so self-aware and dismissing the apparitions of the lion that comes to take her to the el- to, mm. to the elbow, to the <laughs> rainbow. Um, <laughs> That's a very different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I was reading some Patricia McKillop and there was a whole thing. These people were in a bathroom and he was touching the inside of her elbow. Um, yeah, it is literally a different story, different words, different author. <laughs> Um, and when she was dismissing some of them, there is a danger. I'll just say it's a danger because I kind of almost did it. Reading the story of she is progressing to adulthood and in progressing to adulthood, she has to get rid of childish things, like drop some of these stories, like the rainbow and the pot of gold and the lion that comes that she can ride on her back. Um, and when I was having that thought, I was thinking there are these three stages of adulthood. There's one where you believe stories are real because it's fantasy and magic. And then there's two, which is adolescence, where you're cynical and stories are metaphor and they're meaningless. And then there's the third stage, which is maturity, where you're like, stories everything are real. Everything is true. Yeah, everything yeah. is true. It is both um, metaphor and truth at the same time. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, though, that the story is not really stuck in that adolescence. It's at a different place, which is like, what? I just nodded and then hit my nose on the pop filter. <laughs> um, that's the kind of podcast we're running. I was Pure so enthusiastic in my nodding. Class. Um, that the story is kind of like of like Watchmen. You know Watchmen? I've heard of it. You've yeah. heard of Watchmen. Um, because from your it is a story that is both, it, it is what it is and also not at all what it is. Because the story in a sense is like the, the magic was inside of her all along kind of story. Like, you know, she already knows everything she needs to know. And she has the power. 
and it's not the stories that are giving her power. But you're right that it's it's not just that some power is in her, but that the stories she already knows that are in her are the right stories. And so most of what, you know, the like the rainbow and the pot of gold, mm-hmm. those are white stories. Mm-hmm. And there are a few times when she discusses what are white stories. And what I love is the the lion disappears, the rainbow disappears, there is no pot of gold. The things that exist at the end of the story are maybe the takalashi might still be out there. Mm-hmm. But what is particularly poignant and magnificent is at the end of the story her dead grandmother is there to give her her younger brother and to say that your mama has died Mm. and there's nothing in the story that indicates that that dead grandmother is not real no and and that is part of what she's chosen to believe as real what what she's chosen is going to make up her reality and and oh, that that choice of what stories we will allow to make up our reality is is the choice that you make as you transition from yeah. childhood to adulthood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just going back to that thing that you said, like the the strength is in you all along. I I love the fact that when she gets to the end of the rainbow and she defeats the Takalashi, and then this glowing being arrives and says to her. Ah, well, even though there's no gold, and I'm sorry about that, even though you're super poor and everything, um, but you have found something more valuable, the courage. And she's just like, fuck off. That is not what I need. Right, right. You are wasting my time. That is is somebody else's story. That is an image of an angel. That is the, you know, the white story. Yeah, and she's she's throwing all of that out and saying that this is not not what's important to me. Um, What's important to me are my grandmother and my brother and you know to some extent her mother although we don't get to see how that mourning happens no because this this story is replacing that moment the this mm. story is the story of the loss of her mother yeah. and it is that transition yeah in this story about stories and what they mean i love that there is so much that is clear and explicit and yet there is also a great deal that is not necessarily clear. So, for instance, this stinky cape lion carries her to the rainbow, and then after she's ridden on his back, he turns around and slashes at her, at her shins, at her legs. Yeah, and he, he is a scorpion. <laughs> All right, the scorpion and the frog. But he doesn't kill her. He doesn't eat her. He doesn't bite her head off, which presumably he's totally capable of. He just he just does this one thing, and it's it's not clear why that violence happens it's not you know what does it mean is it payment is it marking her out is it some kind of talisman for her to carry back to the real world when we never we never find out and yet it feels so right and necessary and true in the story maybe something has just occurred to me right now maybe it's a metaphor or a representation of um you know the the cape lions were indigenous to the Cape part of South Africa, and they were hunted to extinction by white men. So maybe that's what that is. That is the scar of the white man on on Tandiwe's life. Delivered by an image of the thing that was erased. Yeah. Uh, sure. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. 
But it could know. mean so many things, and that's what's... Uh, you know what it could be? In in the the final episode of the fourth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Restless, written by Joss Whedon, uh, aired in, in the year uh, 2001. I'm just going to interrupt here, here, readers, to say that we once won a pop quiz based entirely <laughs> on Chris's knowledge of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the other remaining works of Joss Whedon. It was a beautiful moment. Please continue. It was a good moment. Um, <laughs> the episode is... is more or less all a dream and in the dream there is a guy that has cheese that he generally wears on his head and says things like uh i do not wear the cheese the cheese wears me um and joss whedon explained it as it doesn't mean anything it's just representation of the way that in dreams sometimes there are weird odd things that don't mean anything which he then realized i guess means that it does mean something (laughs) um and that is what the lion represented to me it was the kind of inexplicable violence and danger that mm. stories have the power of stories even mm. stories that we don't believe in even old stories there are moments of danger in dreams and stories that can reach out and strike us if we're not you know if we don't keep our wits about us and in in this story that moment is described in that way she has a brief image of oh I trusted this lion, but maybe I should keep my distance. But she doesn't realize it fast enough, only fast enough so that she is just grazed rather than... This is a story about the importance of stories, and that Mm -hmm. is exactly demonstrates it. Yeah, they they have an incredible power to shape us and harm us. And in fact, that, that speaks to one of the other things I wanted to mention, which is how Tandiway is at this crossroads, this threshold of becoming a grown up. And she's being told stories by a lot of different people in her life. So her grandmother has told her stories. Uh, at, at school, they're telling her different kinds of stories. But white stories. White stories, exactly. And, and not only telling her white stories, but trying to tell her that the stories her grandmother says, that they're not suitable for a modern world. No, mm-hmm. they're stories for old people. And so... She's in this kind of cultural and generational schism where she has to pick, or not necessarily pick between worlds, but figure out what her own blend of those things is. Like, it wasn't clear to me until just talking through this, like, what a moment of crisis it is for her. Not, you know, not just because her mum's dying, but because of having to pick something to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something to be and to believe in, which are more or less the same thing. Uh, yeah, and I in that moment of crisis, I, and I felt both bewildered and frustrated and kind of happy with that at the end of the story, right, she's dismissed the, the angel man. And mm-hmm. she's also dismissed the lion, mm-hmm. which we presume is a story that is not exactly a white story, but maybe you could look at it as a story of the cape that has been marred by the white presence. Um, but at the end of the story, she says the Takalashi follows her back. But then there's that little bit at the end where when she looks out, there is no Takalashi. There's mm-hmm. only the wind, which I say is bewildering because partly the way I read the story was that she was choosing her grandmother's stories. Right. And the Takalashi is a part of her grandmother's story. And but that again, seems to negate it. It seems to negate it and that the only reality is her her dead grandmother. Like that is who she believes yeah. in as the ghost of that. Uh, but yeah, also was kind of satisfied with because I feel like there's no more... 
kind of white or Western frustrating story trope than the trope of, oh, it's just the wind. And that is kind of where the story ends. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, it's just the wind. So I, I kind of was like, oh, maybe there's just one last dig at that because I don't know. That line never means what it seems to mean anyway. Usually if something is just the wind, it means that there is a monster out there right. and it's going to eat you. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I hear what you mean. There's uh, that that final line left me with questions. I wanted either one line less or one line more. Um, but it still it still took it to a an excellent resting place. I'm going to come back at that with a way less erudite point. <laughs> so when the lion carries her, it's described as a stinky lion, and. Uh, I got, I just love that word, particularly in the way that it's used here. It's, uh, it's so evocative. So simple, so childlike. And yet, when you use it as an adult, it's so powerful. Um, so yeah, this is my vote for stinky. Beautiful word. Also, also, I believe the lion's back is rippling with muscle. So I appreciate it as well, as in a lot of fairy tales, that something that seemed kind of childlike, like the, this glorious idea that you could ride a lion. And in the way of fairy tales, that image is both more violent and more sexual, and in that way, more true to what it is to be a child. Like, the whole idea of innocence is only really ever true when it is complicated. Innocence only exists where it doesn't. My story for this week uh, is Appliances by Nikki Alfar, which is in Heat, which is part of a trilogy of Southeast Asian urban anthologies, uh, the other two being Trash and Flesh. Uh, we were lucky enough to see the launch of these anthologies in London, where we live. Sometimes I forget, not in the sense of forgetting the place we live, but forgetting as one does, like the conception, the idea of a city you had in your mind before you came to it. And then you remember, oh yeah, I'm living in that place. I'm living in London. It's a pretty cool place to live. Appliances by, by Nikki Alfar. The new electric... No, I'm not going to read the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this story, much like Six Things We Found During the Autopsy, is a story from a male point of view. It is a story of a male experience of women, uh, but delivered by a woman, delivered in a way that more or less eviscerates that point of view as it delivers it. And that is a bulletproof pink, a bulletproof pink, a bulletproof kink for me. If you can deliver uh, a point of view uh, and at the same time, eviscerate it. Uh, and it's done with such boundless joy and enthusiasm as well. well. Yeah, that is, I mean, eventually I'll summarize it. But yes, the story has such delightful, it's just a mirthful, uh, a mirthful glee stomp. <laughs> uh, that is how I would describe it, a mirthful glee stomp. So what happens is there's a guy named Ruben. And the first sentence of the story is the new electric flan. The new electric flan. That would be an amazing dish, <laughs> <laughs> or a dance, a new dance craze. The electric flan. Uh, no, the first sentence of appliances is the new electric fan blew Ruben's girlfriend 
right out of bed. It's very Edgar Carrot in its magical, weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like because because you could read that sentence and imagine. You know, she's speaking figuratively. Uh-huh. Like you, you would be fine as a reader at the end of that first sentence, just feeling like, oh, it's just exaggeration. But then, bit by bit, it takes you into no. It, it has blown her out of the room. Like he is trying to hold on to her, but she slips out of his sleep feeble grasp and sails right out the open window. And, and the sentence that follows that is one that I highlighted to read because it is so awesome. Cursing and stumbling. He wrenched the balcony door open and managed to make it outside, but it was too late to do anything more than watch her blanket entangled form crest the railing and, once clear of the perimeter of his condominium's walls, vanish, to his enormous relief, with a soap bubble pop out into the night sky. Yeah, that is basically what I, uh, well, it's what I hope for from any romantic encounter, (laughs) is to see the, the lady of my affection sail out the window. And vanish. And disappear like a soap bubble? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every Any reference to The Little Mermaid, I'll take. How is that? I don't remember that part. Uh, because in the Hans Christian Andersen version of the story, what happens to the mermaid is either a tragic, tragic death where she dissolves into a bunch of bubbles that disappear, <laughs> or a magical moment of transcendence where after all of her bodied struggle, you know, her struggle with her identity, she has transcended. I pr- prefer the transcendence to an actual bird rather than bubbles that disappear because that kind of seems like you're gone Mm -hmm. uh rather than transcended and (laughs) to describe what happens in the story is that reuben has a series of girlfriends which uh the story and reuben reuben associate with various appliances there's the woman that is associated with the uh comforter that he sleeps on there is the woman associated with the washer dryer which he washes his clothes in buys all the girlfriends at the same store where he buys, he buys all of the right, appliances. Right, because this just makes sense. Because generally when you see advertisements and commercials for appliances, they tend to have women attached to them. <laughs> That's very And true. so I don't know why, if you were watching a commercial, you wouldn't think that the woman was also for sale. That reminds me of my first experience of feminism, which when I was about, I think, eight years old and um, we needed to replace the shower at home and so my mum had a dolphin catalogue. A dolphin catalogue? Right. There was a shower brand called Dolphin in the 80s. Okay. Don't say that. Just let us, me (laughs) and all the readers, imagine that you and your mum had a catalogue from which you could select various sizes and shapes and colours of dolphins. And there were women At different price points. Beneath these dolphins. Um, You've just described uh, my third favorite fantasy. (laughs) But anyway, my mom was so angry that every single picture of a shower only had women in the picture. She wrote them a very stern letter about uh, how inappropriate this was and how she wouldn't be buying any of their showers because her showers, they were going to be used by people of all genders. And I, I guess it opened my eyes at a very young age about how these kinds of stories were being fed to us yeah yeah anyway end of sidebar no no (laughs) don't end that that is that is a direct bar that is an inline bar because that is what this story is because each 
each treatment of uh, Reuben, each experience of, that Reuben has of the women in his life that he has bought from the same store where he also buys his appliances is one of who is this woman? What is her function in my life? How does she fit my desires, my checklist of what is good? Yeah, and I want to jump in to talk about how clearly Reuben is a misogynist twat. Oh, at the very least, clueless. And the product of a misogynist society. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. A clueless man that is a product of a misogynistic society, which we call Earth. <laughs> yeah. But the way Nikki has delivered this story, at no point was I frustrated with either her as the author or with the story itself. She, clearly, she was aware of it, but she wasn't pushing it too hard to make it feel like she was really preaching at us. Sometimes it was quite sexy. Yeah, it was quite sexy. Yeah, yeah. That's what I like with my with my cutting satire. <laughs> Sexiness. It's really all I want from a washer-dryer as well. Give me a little sexy. sexy. Yeah, that's how you sell it. You're so wrong. I don't know how she did it, and I kind of don't want to pick it apart too much because oh, it's you, just You just run so into the beautiful. wall of what we're doing with our podcast. Well, <laughs> uh, oh, because it's like... Oh, she does this amazing thing. I don't know how. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> we can talk about it. I just, I'm a little bit scared it will ruin the magic. Um, well. What she does that I think is so good is create effective satire because she's both telling the effective story of Reuben as a person, but it's also built inside of this world where sexism has been commoditized and yet she does not let go of that premise to preach. She just follows the story hard. And that is what makes it successful. And I think one of the other things that works is that also like six things, the images are, are gorgeous and violent and weird. And their juxtaposition with the, the commodities of, of a fan and the washer dryer and the air conditioner and the comfort comforter Wedge, them, wedge themselves in your brain in a way that is more complicated than any kind of, of preachiness could be. Because, yes, it is horrible that that woman has disappeared in a soap bubble pop. But damn it, if when I read it, I don't think, oh, that's gorgeous. That's good. <laughs> I like that. And that is the power of stories, is they can feed you. They can feed you your world in a way that is both more delightful and wicked than the world can ever be. And that is the hope for stories, because advertising is really good at presenting you with a world that both seems more real and yet is so empty. That is the mark of, of this story, is that in those unreal images, it, it kind of implants a greater reality than the kind of bright, dead advertising that exists, which is so hyper-real as to ultimately erase reality. Yeah, it's kind of a fantastical whimsy, yet it still manages to build a very solid foundation in the world. And so you never wonder why or how anything happens, and you just kind of accept it when one of the girlfriends folds herself up and disappears into the link collector in the washing machine. Another brief sidebar is I think this is probably the episode where I should discuss how I once had a dream of Christina Aguilera. Uh, maybe in my early 20s. Haven't we all? Probably. We might, have all, might not have all had this dream, which is that she was having some kind of concert in, in the underground. Not London. I think it might have been Paris. I don't know. I had never been to the Paris subway at that time. And I was there. 
And after the show, I was going to go up and talk to her because maybe we had had a moment of connection or something. And as I, as I got closer and closer to her, there was a moment where I ran into a pane of glass that I had never seen before. And the dream just kind of wiggled away from me. And now I was on my, you know, in my room watching her on TV and I had never really been there and it wasn't real. Wow. Uh, and that was the sense I had of the story because you're right, it, it never drops the reality of its satire. And yet what gave it to me uh, a sense of, of greatness and wonder and even gives to Ruben a, a sense of humanity is that, as you, you called him misogynist, I called him clueless, the, at the end of the story, he has found a woman that he seems so connected with and yet perhaps as a product of his society, he is constantly trying to think of how could it be better? How could it be better? I'm not satisfied. Why am I not satisfied? Because everything is always supposed to be better than it is, and I can't be satisfied with what exists in front of me. And rather than that woman just disappearing because of something he does, that woman says to him, here are all the things that suck about you, uh, so I'm going to leave. And she steps into the TV and disappears into the world of the TV. And the last line of the story is his remark of, of kind of tragedy of him looking at her and saying, it all seems so real. And that was the moment when I remembered my dream. That was the moment I remembered that kind of poignancy where the misogyny of advertising is deep and entrenched and evil. But there can be a sense of, of loss when you have to strip that away because there is, there is a reality that is presented to you. Just like in the story we were talking about before that Nick Wood wrote about uh, Tandewi, about like, no, that rainbow, no. Sorry, there's no pot of gold. Yeah, and your life will be better for losing it. It doesn't mean that there, there isn't any cost in cutting that out. Uh, yeah, no matter how worth it it is. I too loved how the final girlfriend chose to leave him. I could have probably enjoyed one extra paragraph at the beginning of the last section. I felt like maybe it just hit me a little bit rushed. But where it ends up at the end of that section with her stepping into the TV and these very specific moments and details around his sense of loss... The fluttering umbrellas, the wafting of her hair, and the confusion that he feels about what's real and what's not real. It's very beautifully done. Yeah. I also thought it was a really interesting choice not to have the source of their breakup be his growing paranoia, which is what I feel like some writers might have gone for. But for her to become this sentient being in the story and be like, dude... You're basically not a very good person. Yeah, I think that would have been a mistake to give it to his paranoia because in giving that last girlfriend her own, as you as you have said the word a lot, interiority, her own choices, helpfully allows you to look at the rest of the story and wonder, did all of those girls vanish? Or did they just vanish from his life? Right. Did they also choose to walk away yeah. in their different ways? And maybe he just didn't notice it's a fantastic way to to read the story i think that she has that interiority she has that choice at the end but the fact that at last ruben's point of view hears that yep and sees yeah. that person leave and yet maintain their own reality even if it is separate and unreachable for him 
is his own growth and is what makes that last line where he says it all seems so real have an extra sense of poignancy because just in his recognition of her being different from the other girlfriends he's grown even as he's lost you feel like maybe he won't head straight back out to the shop to buy another one yeah i i also i think his his warranty has expired and he's got too much credit card debt so it's you know it works both ways for him um bye reuben i hope never to meet you you're so cruel to people sometimes i mean it's just in the story yeah i mean who knows who knows with reuben it's just my glorious thing as a writer i don't have to sit in judgment of the characters i can sit in judgment of the systems that impact upon them uh my other sidebar is how despicable the phrase high maintenance is. It is one of my least favorite expressions that has ever slipped from anyone's lips. The idea that, and it is only a woman, of course, in particular, uh, is either high or low maintenance. Part of what I love in this story is that it's the only real place where she draws a very literal line between here's the language we use to discuss women that turns them into products whose only value is how they function in our life and how difficult or easy they are to maintain. And everywhere else in the story, there is just, as we've said, the bright, dark whimsy of these women fluttering in and out of his life. And the only connection between them and appliances is that he buys them at the same time. Thanks for listening, readers. As generally happens, we have not managed to discuss the infinite number of stories that exist in the world on this episode that is only 30 minutes long. So if you want to let us know about anything that we missed or other great stories that you've read, then you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at StoryLogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the smoke room that is shaped like a letter O. And logical. Like recursion. Which I still don't think is a word. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter at Kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And of course, for show notes, links to the things we referenced, appropriate gifts, a chance to subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the interweb. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening, readers. See you next time. Happy reading. C-U-V-O-L-S. Yeah. If you ever want to know what that means, find me at a convention. It's not a good story, but it is enjoyable (laughs) to listen to me tell it.